Good evening, everyone, and um, thank you for your patience whilst we've tried to seat as many as possible in this lecture theatre. Welcome to tonight's Miliband Lecture. My name's Paul Kelly, and I'm a professor of political theory and the head of the government department, and I'm standing in for Professor David Held tonight. The Miliband Lecture Series and Programme was endowed by a former student of Ralph Miliband in recognition of his contribution to the study of politics at LSE and more generally. It's become a forum for leading scholars in the field to address some of the most pressing issues of the day. Consequently, it's, a, it's an honour for us, it's an honour for me in particular, to introduce tonight's speaker, Joseph Nye. Joseph Nye is one of the most distinguished thinkers on international and global politics. His works will be familiar to many of you here, students and colleagues. For many of you, they will have been required readings. Joseph Nye is University Distinguished Professor at Harvard University John F. John F. Kennedy School of Government and has previously served as the Dean of the Kennedy School. I'm sure he won't mind if I praise the uh, full briefing note which I've been given. It does, he does, after all, have a lecture to give and you probably have questions to ask him. Um, and the briefing note is very, very long. Um, and to read out, as I say, all his awards, honours and achievements is not why you came. But there's a couple of things I'd like to focus on just briefly. Joe is the author of ten books. I won't mention them all, but would like to highlight two appropriate for tonight. The Paradox of American Power from 2002 and Soft Power, The Means to Success in World Politics. Both works, those of you who have read them will, I'm sure, agree, are transformative in the study of study and analysis of global politics and they've shifted paradigms in the field. But alongside academic distinction, Joseph Nye has also contributed to the practice of global and international politics. He became deputy to the Under Secretary of State for Security Assistance, Science and Technology and chaired the National Security Council Group on Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons from 77 to 79. In 93 and 94, he was chairman of the National Intelligence Council and served as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs in the Clinton administration. I'm sure that also gives him a very um, interesting perspective on events that have happened over the last few days. Tonight, Professor Nye is to return to the discussion of power and to speak to us about his new book, The Future of Power. Professor Nye will speak for about 30 minutes and then there'll be plenty of opportunity for questions from the floor. And that's how he would prefer to proceed, so have your questions ready. And then at the end of the session, we will have an opportunity for a book signing. So, ladies and gentlemen, Professor Joseph Nye. Thank you very much for that kind introduction, Paul. I appreciate it, and it's uh, very nice to be back at LSE for a Miliband lecture. Uh, it's, a, uh, I think, the second time I've done a Miliband lecture, so I feel particularly privileged, and I always enjoy uh, my visits at LSE. On the discussion tonight, what I'd like to do is to keep my remarks brief enough that we can have plenty of time for your questions, because that's when you get to raise the things that are on your mind. So I'll try to precede some ideas that are in this new book, The Future of Power, uh, but they'll 
be some details which will be deliberately left out, which we can then, if you want to raise them in the uh, uh, question period, we can get into. But if you start the concept of power, uh, basically the way I use the concept of power is it's the ability to affect others to get the outcomes you want. And you can do that in three basic ways. You can do it through threats, coercion, so-called sticks. You can do it through payments, sometimes called carrots. And you can do it by attracting and persuading others to want what you want, which is what I mean by soft power. And that ability to get what you want by attraction and persuasion rather than coercion and payment is very important because essentially if you can do that you can save a lot on carrots and sticks. Now the arguments I'm making is not that soft power can solve all problems, clearly it can't, but what I'm arguing is that hard power can't solve all problems either and that what we have to think about as we deal in policy terms with the world around us is what I call smart power the ability to combine hard and soft power resources into successful strategies that fit different contexts. So that's essentially the background definition of power. But what I want to talk to you about tonight is two big power shifts that are going on in the 21st century and the puzzles and problems that they create for us. These power shifts are caused, in my opinion, by globalization and the information revolution. And I refer to them as power transition, which is a shift of power among states, mostly from west to east, and power diffusion, which is the shift of power from states to non-state actors, uh, whether they're west or east. So let me talk about each of these in turn. When we talk about power transition, uh, the best way to understand this is to imagine that you had a picture of the world in 1800. You would see that more than half the world's population was in Asia, and more than half the world's product came from Asia. But now if you fast forward to 1900 and looked at the picture, you'd see Asia was still more than half the world's population, but only 20% of the world's product. That wasn't something that happened to Asia. It was something that happened in Europe and North America, the Industrial Revolution. And what we're seeing in the 21st century is what you might call the recovery of Asia, or the return to normal proportions. Sometime around the middle of this century, one would expect that Asia will be again half the world's population and half the world's product. This starts obviously with Japan, moves on to Korea, uh, then uh, some Southeast Asian countries like Singapore and Malaysia, uh, now very much focused on China with China's 10% growth, but increasingly will be focused on India where growth rates are approaching 8 and 9%. And the net effect of all this is that somehow by the middle of this century, we're likely to see a world in which Asia is back to what I would call normal proportions. That's power 
transition, I'm going to come back to it, but let me hold that concept in your minds and turn to the other concept I defined, which was power diffusion, which is the shift of power away from governments to non-governmental actors. And perhaps the best way to understand that is to look at the extraordinary change in this most recent information revolution that we've been undergoing. Information revolutions aren't new, and their effects on politics aren't new. After all, Gutenberg's Bible is credited with giving rise to the Protestant Revolution. But what we're going through now is an information revolution which is marked by an extraordinary reduction in the costs of computing and communications. If you look at the cost of computing power, it declined 1,000-fold in the last quarter of the 20th century. That's such a big abstract number, it doesn't mean much. But if you were to translate that into, let's say, something more familiar, like automobiles, and imagine the price of automobiles had declined a thousandfold over the same period, you could buy a car today for five pounds. That's a big change. What that means is that the barriers to entry are now reduced when the price goes down so dramatically. And people and groups and actors who were previously priced out of world politics can now play in the game. That doesn't mean that governments are no longer important. Indeed, they remain the most powerful, important actors in global politics. But it does mean that the stage on which governments act is much more crowded by the presence of new actors. Just to give you a couple of examples of how this technology works, if 1975 or so you wanted to communicate, let's say, from London to uh, uh, Santiago, Chile, to Johannesburg, South Africa, and to Beijing simultaneously, you could have done it. It was technically quite feasible, but it was very expensive. So you would have needed to be a government or multinational corporation, something with a big budget to be able to do that easily. Today, any of you can do that for free using Skype. Or I'll give you another example. When I was in the Carter administration dealing with non-proliferation policy in the 1970s, one of the biggest secrets we had was that we could take a picture of any place on Earth with one meter resolution. That cost us billions and billions of dollars. Today, any of you can go on Google Earth and get a better picture for free. That's an amazing change. I mean, if you go back to my point about reducing barriers to entry, it now means many, many people can play in the game besides governments. Some of these actors that now can play in the game are good. If we put an evaluation on it, uh, let me cite Oxfam or the Gates Foundation. The Gates Foundation actually probably gives more funds to cure malaria in Africa than the US government AID does. Um, some of these are bad. Let me give the example of Al-Qaeda. 
uh, Al-Qaeda, a non-governmental organization, was able to kill more Americans on September 11, 2001 than the government of Japan was in December 1941. You might think of that as the privatization of war. Or yet another example of this diffusion of power empowering and enabling non-state actors uh, would be the role of multinational corporations. If you look at corporations that can develop strategies for employees that can range in the hundreds of thousands and with budgets that you're often larger and sales that are often larger than the GDP of many countries in the world, this is in, not new, but it's enabled in its scope by this new in, inexpensive communications and compu computer technology. Uh, another example would be, uh, let's take the recent events that have happened in the Middle East. If one were talking about Egypt uh, two decades ago, one would have said that there was no middle you either supported Mubarak, the autocrat, or on the other extreme, you had the Muslim fundamentalists of the uh, uh, Muslim Brotherhood. And there was nothing in between. But what we learned in Tahrir Square was this burgeoning of information had created a new middle. And what's more, it had produced techniques which allowed them to coordinate, to overcome the problems of collective action using things like Twitter and Facebook. That doesn't mean that Egypt is today a democracy. There's still a contest going on. We're in the first act of a multi-act play. But it does mean that while you have the army with its hard power and you have the Muslim Brotherhood with a form of soft power, you now have, in addition, a new third actor, the Tyre Square generation, with another form of soft power. That leads to a different politics. How it will turn out, we don't know, but it's certainly different, let's say, than Egypt two decades ago. Or to continue on this question of the effects of power diffusion on changing politics, think of the case of WikiLeaks. Uh, WikiLeaks led to the divulging of 250,000 secret State Department cables. Now, stealing documents, secret documents from other governments is not new. It's probably as old as human history. But the idea of walking out of a foreign office with a briefcase full of secret documents is one thing. The idea of a single individual exfiltrating a warehouse full of secret documents on a Lady Gaga disc and distributing it around the world, that's new. That difference in quantity becomes a difference in quality in terms of how you arrange communications and diplomacy. And finally is an example of this effect of the diffusion of power and the empowerment of non-state actors. Think of the problems of cybersecurity, which we're beginning to think more about. I noticed that uh, when I was at the Munich Security Conference in uh, uh, February, uh, both the uh, uh, Foreign Minister Haig and Prime Minister Cameron came. And what did they spend a lot of their time talking about? Cyber, cyber security. So it's an issue which is becoming increasingly important. 
But it has some interesting dimensions to it in terms of power diffusion. I don't know how many of you have ever seen a wonderful cartoon that was printed in the New Yorker magazine about a decade or a decade and a half ago. And it had a picture of a computer and two dogs sitting in front of the computer. And one dog looks at the other dog and says, don't worry, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. <laughs> that was a wonderful cartoon, but it was also politically prescient because it may well be that when, if we are attacked, we won't know who attacked us. Recently, you've seen news of Stuxnet, a worm which has interfered with centrifuges in the Iranian nuclear centrifuge program and persuaded some of these centrifuges to shake themselves to death. Uh, very interesting, but it does lead to another question, which is suppose somebody does a Stuxnet event back to us. Suppose, for example, that all electricity goes out in the southern half of England. Or suppose that in the northeast of the US, particularly in February when the pipes freeze, if there's no electricity. Um, who did it? Well, it could be another government. Could be a hacker or a group of hackers. It could be a criminal gang. It could be cyber terrorists. The one thing we would know is that whoever was clever enough to do this would also be clever enough to root this in such a way that it didn't come where we thought it came from. So as we looked and see that this attack came, let's say, from Moscow or from Beijing, you could be quite sure that's not where it came from. But we wouldn't know where it did come from. This raises a whole series of problems, this diffusion of power empowering non-state, non-governmental actors, a whole dimension of politics which we haven't yet begun to wrap our minds around. In fact, you could argue that in cybersecurity, we are at about the same position in terms of thinking through strategy that we were in nuclear security around 1950. What's offense? What's defense? What's deterrence when there's no attribution? We haven't got answers to those questions yet. So this is an example of how power diffusion from states to non-state actors from this information revolution is transforming global politics. Now, let me take you back to power uh, transition, the movement among states. Very often this is explained, or we explain this to, each other, to ourselves, as a narrative of rise and fall or decline. And it's often told that this is the decline of the United States and the rise of China. But these narratives of decline and the academic theory that goes with them, it's sometimes called hegemonic transition theory, are really inadequate for us to understand what's going on. First of all, we don't know what is the normal life cycle of a country. We do know what's the normal life cycle of a human being. I can assure you that I am in decline. But we don't know what's the normal life cycle of a country. It's interesting that Horace Walpole in the 18th century, after Britain 
had lost its North American colonies, said, woe is Britain. We're now reduced to a miserable little country like Denmark or Sardinia. This was on the eve of Britain's greatest century, the 19th century, which was fueled by the Industrial Revolution. We don't know what the next century will bring in terms of the United States. We don't have any idea, and to sort of act as many people who write op-eds and other clever articles and journals that say the American Empire is going the way of the Roman Empire, um, not very useful. For one thing, the Roman Empire took about 300 years to decline, so we don't know how, where we are in this kind of cycle. But more important, the concept of decline is a confusing concept because people mix together absolute decline and relative decline. Absolute decline is indeed what happened to ancient Rome. Ancient Rome was an agrarian society with no productivity growth. You got more wealth by capturing more people, stealing more money from the world. Uh, what's more, it was wrought, uh, racked rather, by internecine warfare and eventually succumbed not to the rise of another empire or another state, but to hordes of barbarians. Whatever you think about the problems of the United States, that's not a very apt analogy. For example, the American economy uh, is rated by the World Economic Forum as the fourth most competitive economy in the world after Switzerland, Sweden, and Singapore. China, incidentally, is ranked number 27. If you look at new technologies of the future, like nanotechnology or biotechnology, it's generally agreed that the United States is in the forefront of those technologies. If you look at surveys of entrepreneurial capacity, the U.S. is usually ranked number one on this. So the argument that somehow the U.S. is like ancient Rome uh, in absolute decline is not a very apt description of what's going on. Do the Americans have problems? Yes, very much so. Uh, one that is, for example, preoccupying us now, uh, our debt and deficit problem. But before we become too fatalistic about this, one should notice that about a decade ago, the great worry in the United States was not the deficit, it was the surplus. And if you ask what happened, well, basically, President Bush gave away the tax base and fought two wars without paying for them, and it was amazing how quickly you could get rid of a surplus. <laughs> It may turn out to be somewhat harder to get rid of the deficit, but if you look at the bipartisan deficit reduction commissions, like the one chaired by Senator Simpson, the Republican, and Erskine Bowles, the Democrat, what they propose there is not that hard to do economically, which is cut expenditures and raise revenues. It may be quite hard to do politically, particularly before an election in 20, 2012 but not something that's so outlandish that you say it couldn't be done. So if you look at the question, is the United States in uh, absolute decline, uh, I don't find that very convincing. It, it doesn't uh, uh, make much sense to me. And I think the uh, uh, 
if you disagree with this, you can find lots of facts and figures relating to social change and politics as well as economics that are in the book, which I won't belabor you with now, but if you want, we can talk about them in, in discussion. But let me turn to the other point that I mentioned, which is relative decline. And in relative decline, I think you can make a case that there is relative decline. But sometimes as we think about it, we don't understand what it means. Suppose, for example, you imagine that the United States is here and China is here, or Brazil or India or whoever. As the rest rise, the gap between them and the United States narrows. You can describe that either as the rise of the rest, or you can describe it as narrowing a gap, or you can describe it as relative decline. All three of those are accurate statements of these changes on an imaginary chart that I have in front of you. But it doesn't mean that necessarily Brazil, India, China will pass the United States as the most powerful. Relative decline means the gap shrinks. doesn't mean that another country becomes more powerful. So again, as we use these terms, declined and so forth, we ought to be careful about them analytically because they're very clever for editorial pages but not very clear for analytical analysis, uh, for academic analysis. In fact, one of the things that's interesting is that uh, uh, there is a widespread belief now that the United States is in decline as measured in public opinion polls. You'll find that most Americans think they're in decline. But notice that tells you more about American psychology than about reality. For example, in the 1950s, after Sputnik, the United States public thought it was in decline. In the 1980s, as the Japanese were getting so effective in their manufacturing, there was a widespread belief that the United States was in decline. In fact, my friend, the great British historian Paul Kennedy, now at Yale, wrote a very nice book called The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, which became a bestseller which said the United States was like Philip II Spain or Edwardian England, it was in decline. I wrote a book that said, uh, Bound to Lead, that said this wasn't necessarily the case. And I think I got the answer right, but Paul got all the royalties. But again, the point is that we went through a cycle of thinking about that the Russians were 10 feet tall in the 60s and the Japanese were 10 feet tall in the 80s. Today we think the Chinese are 10 feet tall, uh, but I don't think the facts actually support this. And so we have to be careful as we look at the evidence about what is decline, what do we mean by the terms, and what are the implications. Now you might say, um, so what? You know, what, uh, why do we care? And the answer is that if you don't understand power relations, you can formulate disastrous policies. Many people in China now think that the 2008 economic crisis was the sign that China was on the rise and the US was in decline. And that led to more assertive Chinese policies. One of the effects of that is that when the Obama administration came into office trying to find compromises with China, many Chinese read the American efforts to compromise as proof that America was weak. In fact, what this has done is led the Americans to toughen their position toward China 
and with Hu Jintao's visit in January, we may be back to a more sensible balance in the policy relationship. But mistakes in assessing power balances in power relationships can lead to quite disastrous policies. Now, one thing to think about on this is the question of power transition can be also seen in terms of the proposition that Thucydides introduced into analysis of world politics, which is the danger that occurs when you have the rise of a power and the fear it creates in another. So you'll remember that the explanation that Thucydides gave for the Peloponnesian War, in which the Greek city-state system of the 5th century BC tore itself apart, he said that was really caused by the rise in the power of Athens and the fear it created in Sparta. And many people say, well, and also that was the cause of World War I, in which the European state system tore itself apart and ceased to be central to world politics. It was caused by the rise in the power of Germany and the fear it created in Britain. And those same analysts will go on one step further and say that the story of the 21st century will be a similar conflagration between the United States and China that it will be caused by the rise in the power of China and the fear that creates in the United States. I don't agree with that. I think it's bad history and bad analysis. The reason I don't agree with it is because I don't think China is about to surpass the United States. In 1900, Germany had indeed passed Britain in its economic power. China today is getting closer to the U.S. China has done a wonderful job in terms of growing its economy. They've raised 400 million people out of poverty, but there are an awful lot left in poverty. So even if you say that, as many project, the Chinese economy will be equal in size to the American economy, and then pick your favorite date in a decade, in two decades, whatever, uh, it, equality in size of an economy is not equality in the composition. The composition of an economy or the sophistication of an economy is better measured by per capita income rather than by total population multiplied by income. And in those terms, what you will find is that China is not likely to catch up to the United States in per capita income for another two or three decades past whatever decade you just picked for the equality in size. Um, so in that sense, in Chinese economic power is greatly increasing, but to argue that the Chinese will have as much economic power as the U.S., I think is not necessarily following from that. In addition, as we look at power, we want to look at not just economic power, but other dimensions of power. For example, military power. Uh, China is investing greatly in its military budget about 13% increase this year compared to 10% growth in GDP, and it's developing significant military capabilities. This year it'll build its first aircraft carrier. But there's a long way to go between having one aircraft carrier and 11 carrier battle groups. So I don't think the Chinese, the view that China is about to pass the Americans in military power is accurate either. And finally, if you come to the issue of soft power, the third dimension of power, 
military, economic, and soft power. China is indeed investing heavily in its soft power, and for good reason. President Hu Jintao told the 17th Party Congress of the Chinese Communist Party in 2007 that China should invest in soft power. That is a smart power strategy. If you are a country which is rising in your hard power resources, economic and military, what's likely to happen? You're likely to frighten your neighbors. But if you can combine that rise in hard power with an increase in soft power so that you're attractive to others, then you're less likely to frighten them into forming coalitions against you. So when Hu Jintao told the Chinese Communist Party that China would invest more in soft power, it was a very smart strategy. The problem that China has is in implementing it. Because one of the difficulties is that a lot of soft power is generated not by governments, but by civil society. China is investing vast resources, billions of dollars, in Confucius Institutes to promote what is a very attractive traditional Chinese culture, but also in basically what you might call uh, broadcast capacities to have CCTV become a Chinese Al Jazeera. Um, the problem with this, of course, is that when you have government broadcasting, and if it sounds like propaganda, it doesn't buy you much. In an information age, the scarce resource is attention, and attention is, depends upon credibility. And government broadcasting is not often credible. So the billions of dollars that are being spent to develop Chinese soft power have not in practice produced as much as one would expect from the investment. And part of the reason for that is China cannot relax and let go of its control of civil society because of the nature of the system. So yes, China can have a superb exposition like the Shanghai Expo or the Beijing Olympics. I found the Shanghai Expo really wonderful when I went to visit it. But then they go and they lock up Liu Xiaobo and prevent him going to the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony and they undercut a great deal of the soft power that they created by the Expo. So until China can change to the point that it can unleash its civil society, it's hard to see China equaling the U.S. in soft power either. Indeed, a recent poll was taken by the BBC, which showed that China lagged severely behind in soft power. Now, why do I belabor this point? It's not because it's something that one should take pride in. I mean, it's not like saying I'm the number one football team in, uh, in the world, uh, power isn't good or bad per se. Power is like calories in your diet. Uh, too few and you expire, too many and you become obese. So it's not to celebrate power, it's to go back to the point I made earlier that if you misunderstand power relationships and realities of power, you can get severely mistaken policies. And the danger I see is that Chinese officials thinking that they're on the rise and American officials thinking they're on decline fail to produce the cooperation that's going to be essential if we're going to manage the problems of the 21st century, both power transition 
and power diffusion. Now let me bring those two concepts of transition and diffusion together uh, in a final metaphor. If one looks at power and the distribution of power in the 21st century, I use a metaphor of a three-dimensional chess game in which on the top board of military relations among states, the world is unipolar. There is only one superpower. The United States militarily is about half the world's budgets on military affairs and the only country able to project military power on a global scale. But go to the second board of economic relations among states, and there the world is multipolar. Here, Europe can act as an entity, and when it does, the European economy is larger than the American economy. And here, American power can be balanced by Europe, by China, by Japan, by many other countries. But now let me take you to the bottom board, the third board of this three-dimensional chess game, the board of transnational relations, things that cross borders outside the control of governments. And here's where power diffusion comes in, where these non-state actors play. And think in terms of, let's say, financial flows by corporations or by criminal gangs, which may be larger than the budgets of many countries. Or think of terrorist groups, which are able to act transnationally in dozens of countries at the same time. Or think of cyber terrorism, where the electrons are crossing borders, but we have no idea where they're coming from. Or think of impersonal processes like climate change, where basically carbon dioxide put into the atmosphere by one country affects all countries, regardless of borders. Or think of pandemics, such as swine flu. And it's worth recalling that in 1918 and 19, a pandemic killed more people than died in World War I. And, ask, and pandemics can be spread by birds, by airplanes, people on an airplane, and so forth. And ask yourself of these new problems that I just described, which are serious threats for the 21st century, how many of those can you solve with military power? How many of them can you solve acting alone? Not much. On this bottom board of transnational relations, it's essential to use your soft power to organize networks of cooperation to deal with things which you can't deal with alone. And that means we're going to have to think about power in a much more sophisticated way than we have in the past. To deal with power in these transnational issues, we have to realize that to go back to my original definition, that power is the ability to affect others to get the outcomes you want, there is power over others. There's also power with others, which means that sometimes to get the outcomes we want, we have to think of power in positive some terms as working with others, not just of telling others what to do. And I can illustrate that for you with the case of climate change. China, the one area where China has become a superpower, it's the superpower of CO2. China passed the United States as the most the world's greatest emitter of CO2 a couple of years ago. China builds one new coal-fired plant every week. 
the CO2 from these plants goes into the atmosphere and creates problems, not just for China, but for the rest of the world. What can we do about that? Well, I suppose you could think of a 19th century answer and say you would uh, bomb these coal-fired plants, rather far-fetched. Or you could think of a 20th century answer saying we'll put up sanctions and trade barriers against China if it uses its own sovereign coal to make energy. Well, that's a good way to mess up the world trading system. Or you could say, if we can work with China cooperatively to think of technologies and develop technologies that reduce the carbon intensity of Chinese growth, that empowers China, but it also empowers us. It's a win-win proposition. So for many of these new problems that grow out of the diffusion of power that are on this bottom transnational chessboard, board of the chessboard, uh, we're going to have to think of power in a different way. When I was studying international politics, uh, listening to the great Oxford historian A.J.P. Taylor, he defined a great power as a country that could prevail in war. In an information age, prevailing in war still matters. But in many instances, whose story wins is as important as whose army wins. If we don't think of the significance of narrative and soft power in attracting and helping us to organize cooperation, we're not going to be able to deal with these huge power shifts of the 21st century, power transition and power diffusion. How well are we doing in terms of thinking about power in a more sophisticated way? Not very. We still tend to revert to old-fashioned thoughts about what power is, and that worries me, but that's why I've written my most recent book. So thank you very much. Okay, we have about 25 minutes for questions. Can I ask, well, first of all, I propose to take about four questions together, but could I ask you to be concise? Could you indicate clearly by raising your hand? Tell us who you are and wait for the microphone. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, questions. Okay, I'll take the first three from, four from that side. So the gentleman, uh, end of the... Keep your hands up for the moment, those four, and then I'll move into the center. Oh, thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Dossif. Um, your talk sort of reminds me of Philip Bobbitt, some of the comments. Yeah, my, my question, uh, actually, it's a comment, if you can uh, comment on it, is, uh, to me, power is linked with ambition. And when talking about China and India, I, I sort of don't see uh, ambition, for example, for China the power that checks China in the region is the United States. So um, similarly for India as well, I mean, what is the ambition? They don't have a global ambition. They, what is it that they bring on the table to even claim uh, uh, the status of uh, power beyond the region? Thanks. Thank you. Lady on the front there. 
I want to ask a question on Middle East. Uh, my question is, um, if we if we uh, look at the, the the policies that America has taken now, what do you, what is your analysis? Do you think it is a reflection of Americans' strength, or it is a refle reflection of Americans' declining? And uh, also, what is your analysis of the uh, next step policy towards Syria? What will happen to Syria in your in Syria in your analysis? Thank you. There was two more questions, so put your hand up. You talked about the diffusion of power and also that today uh, the dominant narrative wins. Um, somebody said once that tyranny is the absence of nuance, so my question is to what extent do you think that government in the future has this ability to embrace networked views uh, given that dominant narratives are still powerful, but yet there are many, many nuances in a network nation. And one last for this group, gentlemen. Uh, hi, my name's David Long, and I'd just like to ask, um, you talked a lot about the rise of China's uh, soft power. Uh, what... Um, effects do you think that will have on the future of democracy around the world and do you think that the communist dictatorship can truly have soft power in the 21st century? Okay. Um, on the question of power being linked to ambition, sometimes yes but not necessarily. Uh, if you are a Canadian and you look at the United States, it may not be because of American ambition, it may just be American size that worries you. As Canadians sometimes say, the problem with living next to the United States is not uh, unlike living next to or sleeping with an elephant. It's not whether the elephant has bad intentions or ambitions, it's just if the damn thing rolls over, it hurts. Uh, so I guess the, the I, I don't accept that power and ambition have to be linked, but there is an interesting question is uh, how will China, for example, as it rises, uh, what will its ambitions be? Deng Xiaoping set a, a proposition for Chinese power which was saying, bide your time. In other words, be very modest in your ambitions. Um, some people think that in the last couple of years, Chinese leaders have violated Deng Xiaoping's uh, advice. And if you look at what's happened to China's relations with Japan, South Korea, Vietnam and India in the last two years, they've become worse, partly because of China's more assertive policies. Now whether that will lead China to drop those ambitions and follow Deng's advice or not, we don't know. So it's an open question. On the question of uh, are U.S. policies derived from strength or from decline, well if uh, I don't see them as deriving from decline because I don't see the decline. I, I see the psychology in which people worry about it, but I don't see the decline. I think the one of the great dangers is people talk about uh, the fact that America doesn't get what it wants. For example, to take your Syria point, the Americans can't control what's happening in Syria. But you know what? There's nothing new about that. If you go back to 1945 to 1950, the United States had about half of the world's product and a monopoly on the world's most devastating weapons, nuclear weapons. And you know what? The United States couldn't prevent the loss of China and couldn't win the Korean War. 
So when people say, well, you know, this recent problem, the U.S. can't control the Middle East, it's because of American decline. Excuse me, how do you explain 1945 to 1950? Uh, the answer is very often we make mistakes in thinking that power resources necessarily lead to getting behavior, power behavior, which is the outcomes we want. Um, and I don't think the Americans can determine the outcomes in the Middle East or in Syria today. On the question of networks, I think networks are going to be increasingly important. In an information age, leadership is less hierarchical and more networked. Or putting it another way, and, uh, uh, if you think of leadership as king of the mountain hierarchy, that's very much an industrial age con concept. In an information age, you can think of leadership as being in the center of the circle, drawing others to you through networks. Then if you ask who has that capacity to develop networks, uh, many countries, but I think the Americans probably have that capacity of developing networks as well as any others. There's a very interesting article on this by Anne-Marie Slaughter of the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton, who was the uh, director of policy planning for Hillary Clinton in the Obama administration. It was published in Foreign Affairs about three years ago. And on China's soft power and democracy, I don't think, I mean, China's soft power, that it, its ability to attract others, right now people talk about what they call the Beijing consensus replacing the Washington consensus, that authoritarian development is now all the rage and this is going to be attractive to other countries. It probably is to Myanmar and to Venezuela and to Zimbabwe. It doesn't really attract that much in Europe or North America or India uh, or Japan, uh, which I would say are more significant countries. I think the best prospect for China to increase its soft power is to become more pluralistic and more democratic. I think as China becomes more democratic and pluralistic, its soft power will increase. Thank you. Questions from the center now, so. Um, one, two, three at the front, and then one, two, three. Yeah. Robert. Uh, Robert Wade, um, how would you like to see the G20 um, heads of government reformed in terms of its membership, that is, who gets to sit at the top table, and secondly, in terms of its operating procedures, such as its rule of unanimity, as opposed to, for example, voting. Questions at the front? Yes, if you could indicate, please. Mareike um, Kleine. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more just on the concept of normative power, because um, oh, on could you speak into oh, the Oh, sorry, microphone? the concept, if you could elaborate just a little bit more on the concept of, uh, of normative power, because um, you described the Cold War as a balancing of military power, but you could also conceive of the Cold War as a balancing of different ideas about the good, about good governance, basically. So do you think that some sort of normative balancing might be possible mm -hmm. in the future, or is there now kind of in a Fukuyama way, just one concept of uh, one type of normative power. Gentlemen in the green. Sorry, was the chap behind you? Oh, no. 
Um, I just had a question. After uh, World War II, there was a freedom train in America in 1947. And so it went around developing soft power within the country, and that was seen by 50 million people. Um, and then there was a festival of, of Britain down near Battersea, and that was seen by 10 million people. Um, and that was 1951, I think. So how much is, is, is soft power? Before you can project it on the world, you need to project and get buy-in from your own citizens. Um, I'm just interested in your thoughts on that. And then the gentleman in front of you. So. Um, so you talked a lot about the diffusion of power um, and to non-state actors and questions like that. Now, if that's the case and non-state actors are becoming progressively more important, it would seem sort of folly for states not to recruit them or use them as part of their grand strategy. So I guess, to what extent do you think grand strategy in the future in the 21st century will depend on the effective utilization or recruitment of non-state actors by states to achieve their objectives? Okay, one last question for this group. Could you um, elaborate on how smart power may be able to help in the democratization of nuclear capability? Smart power help what? Uh, how can the, smart power help? The democratization of the nuclear capability of countries mm -hmm. and organizations. Okay. Okay. Uh, on, uh, on Robert Wade's question about the um, uh, G20, I think we need to think of the uh, the G20 as a uh, an agenda uh, shaping organization or network organization, rather than an operational organization. Um, it it basically opens up the agenda. So, for example, when finance was discussed just among the G7, there were a number of countries whose issues were excluded. By having this discussed in a G20. Uh, you have a broader range of views that it get their uh, countries that get their ide ideas on the agenda. There are some who say, well, but the G20 should be developed into more than a network and sh agenda shaping organization. It should have a secretariat and so forth. I think that's probably a mistake. I think that uh, better to b basically think of uh, of institutions in the uh, what the the Europeans uh, call variable geometry. Uh, so you'd have the G20 for shaping the agenda, uh, getting the focus of bureaucracies and so forth to move in a direction. But when you got to the actual working through of the details, you might use the IMF. And the IMF itself has to be changed, as it is being changed, to increase the voting power of China and India and others. But I think the the uh, uh, I think the idea of trying to make the G20 into an operational organization might destroy its effectiveness as a network and agenda forming organization. But there's a you know different people have different views on this. But uh, uh, I'm a little skeptical. I'm, I remember talking with Paul Martin about this uh, recently, and I think the general feeling uh, uh, he and the people he worked with who helped to get this started um, was that it would be a mistake to try to transform the G20 into a, a, a bureaucratized organization. What about the selection of members, selection of the 20? Well, the selection of members is always difficult because uh, somebody's bound to be left out. Um, what you have now is what 75 or 80 percent of world GDP represented. You could develop a an impartial, but there are some anomalies. There are some people who are in that probably shouldn't be in, and others who are out that shouldn't be out. But you could imagine a, 
uh, a formula in which uh, you had population and GDP as criteria, rather objective criteria for membership, and countries then could drop in or drop out depending on how they performed on, on, on such measures. Right now what we have is something that's path dependent. We have the accidents of, of history of who was invited by particular host countries at a particular time. On the um, the narrative, our normative power in the Cold War, I, I, I'm glad you asked that question because I, I should have made it more clear. Um, normative power is extraordinarily important. Um, and if you think about soft power, a lot of it grows out of norms. Legitimacy is a power reality. And if you think back on the Cold War, it's a wonderful example of the importance of, of soft power. Uh, the Berlin Wall did not go down under a barrage of artillery. It went down under hammers and bulldozers wielded by people whose minds had been changed and no longer believed in communism. So that's a good example where, if you want, hard military power may have deterred Soviet armies, but it was soft power which actually changed the minds which brought about the end of the Cold War. On the issue of uh, uh, domestic uh, uh, behavior and soft power. I think that uh, uh, if soft power of a country grows out of its, uh, uh, its culture, its values, and its policies, uh, if a country is not, does not live up to its values at home, it diminishes its soft power. And, it, and the, 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 a great, the greatest solvent of soft power is hypocrisy. When you say one thing and do the opposite, that undercuts your soft power. It's interesting in that sense that uh, uh, President Eisenhower uh, was very much worried at the time when African countries were becoming interdependent about the way America's terrible racial behavior was undercutting American soft power. He didn't use those words, but uh, led a otherwise conservative president to support change in racial segregation up to a point. Uh, on uh, grand power and uh, on a uh, grand strategy and non-state actors, um, I think a sensible strategy has to involve non-state actors. I mean, if 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 we look at the at um, uh, the way the world is changing, a uh, strategy which focuses only on states, well, a strategy that didn't focus on states would be foolish, but a strategy that focuses only on states would be equally foolish. Uh, if I'm correct in terms of my power shifts that I'm describing, you have to have a strategy that focuses on both. Now, how you do this is a different question. Um, I happen to think that, uh, for example, when you're trying to incorporate soft power into a grand strategy, uh, let's suppose to deal with North Africa in the period after the recent revolutions, uh, it ought to involve a large component of, of uh, using uh, our civil society and our non-state actors. Um, and on this question of um, a, uh, how can smart power help in the promotion of democracy, uh, I think the, um, again, uh, there are certain goals which are best dealt with uh, through soft power. I, it, let me give you the 
distinction that was made by Arnold Wolfers, a, a very impressive realist of the of a half century ago. Wolfers distinguished between what he called milieu goals and possession goals. A possession goal is when you want something concrete. I want a military base there or something like that. A milieu goal is when you want something which is general. Uh, I'd like to have an open international trading system. I'd like to have democracy. Very often it turns out that soft power is more effective in developing uh, milieu goals than hard power is. George Bush, George W. Bush had the mistaken idea that you could export democracy uh, with guns in Iraq. I think that was a large mistake. Um, uh, as we've seen, uh, you know, ideas are probably, uh, they come out of soft power, are probably more effective than hard power for that. Some questions from this side. So one, two, and then three, four at the top there. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah, Terry Jessica Tetcher from Scania's Professor. I just wonder if we can turn to events of the last 48 hours and the death of Osama bin Laden. I wonder what you would make of American use of soft power in telling the, telling the American nation, the wider world, about the death of Osama bin Laden, more specifically about the release of the photo of Mr. bin Laden. I wonder whether you would think that might undercut, undercut American soft power and whether you would actually release the photo to um, stop the conspiracy theorists or whether you think that might undercut soft power in terms of to the extremists. Thank you. Uh, my name is Rodney Shai. And um, talk about the, the Chinese consensus of autocratic rule and free market reform and that we need uh, democracy utilization. But another term of that people use with power is power corrupts absolutely. And the Communist Party will never let that power itself go. And then another question will be like, we'll talk about American relative decline. What will be the idea of um, of American exceptionalism with that concept of American relative decline, and you think Donald Trump would be a good president? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then there were two questions further up. Could you raise your hands again, make it clear? Yes, that's it, and then one. Hi, so two brief questions. One was on your three, your metaphor, your chess game, the 3D chess game. Do you think there's a linear relationship with the rise of economic power and military? If so, what do you expect the time lag to be if there is a relationship? And the second question is, uh, you'd mentioned the example of WikiLeaks in the diffusion of, of power. Um, when you think about the role of the public and how the public should um, basically form their opinion of what happens, um, what do you think these organizations will play as a role to help the public form their opinion uh, and therefore the, their political... Um well, thank you. Thanks. And there was one last question. Was that gone? Yes, the gentleman at the end there. I'll have to stop there. Um, Carlos Nascimento, LSE. I would like to have your opinion on Brazil. You mentioned China, India, and Brazil as examples. Uh, what kind of power can Brazil exercise in the global arena without having, with being in a very peaceful country, without atomic bomb? Uh, by definition, couldn't exercise soft power, right? So, uh, does it have an only soft power? It would it limit its ability to influence? Thank you. Um, on the question of bin Laden and death of bin Laden, um, 
I don't think I'd release the photos, but there is a following point. If conspiracy theories are, uh, are always exist, if conspiracy theories start to develop that bin Laden is still alive, then it might be worth releasing the photos. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a tactical question. I think a more important or more interesting question in my mind is um, what will be the net effect of bin Laden's death? Bin Laden had a lot of soft power. He didn't point a gun at people to fly into the World Trade Center or he didn't pay them. He attracted them with a particular perverse form of his religion. Um, now that he's gone uh, physically, will he become a martyr which actually energizes Al-Qaeda, or will it be seen that the myth that he created of invincibility in the wave of the future has been punctured? And we don't know that. Uh, but I don't know that the photos are going to make the difference on that. I think the question on the photos is a tactical question of uh, don't do it, but if a conspiracy theory looks like it's developing, you might have to, to do it. On um, uh, the, uh, let's see, I can't read my own writing. <laughs> uh, what, there was a question about American exceptionalism uh, and, uh, uh, and also on the Chinese Communist Party. I don't, th I mean, the Chinese Communist Party does not want to let go of power. I mean, that's that's uh, basically the, uh, uh, the way the system works now, and I don't, I don't think that's going to change. What's more interesting is what will happen to the Chinese Communist Party as China gets richer? Uh, we know that as countries get richer above $10,000 per capita income, the demand for participation increases. That's not the same as democracy, but it may mean that the, the way you rule a country with a large middle class has to change. And there might be changes within the Communist Party. There might get, you might have factions which are mini parties, you might take the uh, National People's Congress, which now exists as roughly a rubber stamp, and let it start to have some real authorities. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think there'll be changes, but I don't think the Communist Party is going to be overthrown or, or is going to be willing to give up power. Um, on uh, Donald Trump, as uh, uh, if Donald Trump um, becomes president, I may have to become a Briton. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I will be. Um, uh, on the relation of military and economic power, uh, I think that um, uh, if a country uh, develops considerable uh, economic power, uh, it may develop commensurate military power, but it's not a clear one-for-one -one relationship. For example, uh, the United States became the world's largest economy in 1870. It didn't really become the world's largest military power until 70 years after that. So there is a relationship, but that's a pretty long lag. Um, and on the other direction, if you're a military power, how does it affect your economic power? Um, well, it can work either way. I mean, you can overspend yourself into economic decline, or the military and economics can reinforce each other in a positive way. One of the things, again, to go back to Dwight Eisenhower, was he very carefully warned against uh, uh, letting the 
military expenditures undercut the health of the American economy. Um, on the issue of uh, WikiLeaks, that's a very interesting issue. I published an article or an op-ed in the Financial Times, I don't know, about two months ago, maybe six weeks ago, um, saying don't prosecute Julian Assange. Uh, I, don't, I think Assange is basically a symptom, not a cause. If he'd never been born, something like this would have happened anyway because of the technology. What's more interesting than Assange is this question of how do you, what secrets should we have and how do you protect them? Um, to argue that you can run a government or a democracy with total secrecy is clearly false because the people need to know things. But to argue that a government need no secrecy is equally false. I mean, imagine just to take an example, the workings of the uh, uh, international of, of the monetary authorities. If you couldn't have a meeting of the monetary authorities in secret, then the markets would immediately discount everything that was being done and become self-negating activity. So there is a case for secrecy, and I think what WikiLeaks is, has done is made us rethink: Why do we classify as much as we do? And if we do think things have to be classified, why don't we do a better job of protecting them? Um, and then finally, there was the question about uh, uh, Brazil. Um, I um, uh, am actually quite optimistic about Brazil. Um, Brazil has had a, a very good couple of decades uh, both economically, once it got inflation under control, and politically. It's had, uh, you know, democratic transitions, which are very impressive. And um, uh, if it can keep those two things, uh, Brazil is going to be a very important and powerful country. Sometimes people say, ah, but Brazil doesn't have a nuclear weapon. I think it'd be a huge mistake for Brazil. Brazil is the natural dominant country of Latin America. If it develops nuclear weapons and then other countries develop nuclear weapons to counter that, it's worse off than it is now. So the fact that Brazil uh, has, you know, this huge position, a dominant position of, in Latin America, and the fact that it now has a very positive economic record and a very positive political record in terms of democracy, uh, I think gets away from this old joke, you know, the joke that uh, Brazil is a country with a wonderful future and always will be. Well, I think that's now changed. I think you can say that Brazil is a country with a wonderful future, period. I'm afraid I have yep. to um, bring things to a close here. I know there are plenty of, of other questions we could have had. So can I thank the audience, one for coming and for, for bearing with me on that and for your participation, and ask you to join with me in thanking Professor Nye for his lecture.